0: This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann and you're listening to episode 1626, The Transition Town Movement. My guest for this episode is Rob Hopkins, the creator of this idea of transition towns, which are a way for us to move from oil dependency to local resilience. That led to his writing of the Transition Handbook, something that I think that every practitioner of permaculture should have in their library. It serves as a good introduction to how we can move from the landscape to the people space. To not only grow food, but also self-sufficient, interdependent communities. As we get to that conversation, our sponsor of the day is The Fifth World, a role-playing game initially created by Jason Kadeski, but that is now influenced by a growing community of authors, artists, designers, gamers, and dreamers. This open-source game looks to explore a neo-tribal, ecotopian, animist future. What will your world look like in this feral new world? Find out more and get involved at thefifthworld.com. And also be sure to visit our other sponsors, Permikids, and a good seed company. Now then, on to Rob. I'll join you again after the interview. Then, Rob, if you can give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to permaculture and this idea of transition, and we can take the conversation from there. So, well, uh, hello.
1: I let me think now. So, from the age of 14, I was quite sort of politically interested and engaged. I think. Um, I think looking back, that. The generation that kind of grew up after punk, I think uh, because our school at that time was so unutterably rubbish and kind of generally pointless, we were a a kind of a generation that taught itself and uh, a lot of the music at the time directed people who listened to it off to, to books or other records or political ideas that people should follow up. So, uh, so a lot of my education sort of came through music, actually, through punk and through things around that sort of time. So I was I was introduced from quite early on to to a lot of ideas around social change and anarchism and uh, kind of protest culture, situationism, those sort of things, and Buddhism. I got very involved in in Buddhism, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, and lived in Italy for some time, and went to India and all that kind of stuff. And then when I was travelling, I was in pakistan and i went to i was traveling with a guy who was from australia english guy lived in australia who was into permaculture and he kept talking about permaculture and i had no idea what he meant at all the only thing i really took away from it was every time we went to in particular when we went to the hunza valley which was one of the most astonishing sustainable agricultures that i'd ever seen or whenever we saw apricot trees he got terribly excited and started writing little articles back to his local permaculture newsletter that he was involved with so basically I I left my time with him thinking permaculture was something to do with apricot trees And, and then I got home and a friend of mine just gave me as a gift which is quite extraordinary because it's very expensive gave me Bill Mollison's designer's manual and as someone who had come from a a position of thinking the way that you make social changes by protesting and demonstrating and trying to stop stuff. Here was a book that was a, a manual of earth repair. Had a whole this idea of earth repair. I thought this is just extraordinary. And I found that there was a permaculture group in Bristol, and I kind of harassed them into putting on a design course. Did a design course. And then uh, did a degree. There was one of the very first kind of sustainability degrees at a university in Bristol. So, which I'm really glad I had permaculture before I did that, because just being surrounded by all the sol- all the problems without that sort of permaculture solutions lens would I think have been quite a bleak experience. And then in 1996, I moved with my family to Ireland, where we wanted to do a kind of eco-village project. So then I was I started teaching permaculture, initially doing introductory courses. Then I did a design course as an evening class and then found an amazing college in a town called Kinsale, which was very sort of progressive adult education college. And I went to see the principal and said, I've got this idea. I'd love to do a, a design course as a kind of as a year long thing. And he said, great, let's do it. It was brilliant. And so we set up this course. It was called Practical Sustainability. It, it was a, a, a sort of inflated permaculture design course. Had a permaculture design course at its core, but there was lots of practical stuff. We did natural building, planting trees. We built a theatre out of earth and clay. I mean, it was an amazing thing. And the first year, from the second year it was on, it was oversubscribed every year. I ran that for five years. And then I moved back to England in 2005, having started some work in Kinsale that was kind of the forerunner of transition, the idea of looking at how could you apply permaculture principles to the collective, positive, successful uh, descent away from fossil fuel dependency. And then that was what really led on to transition. So I kind of regard myself as uh, whether when I did my design course, permaculture rewired my brain, and it kind of gave me whenever I teach when I used to I don't do it so much now when I used to teach permaculture I was used to say what I'm giving you is a is a kind of a pair of glasses that you look at things through and never see things in the same way again which is where you shift from seeing what there is to seeing possibilities and that's a very very powerful thing And and, and it has then gone on to inform all of my life through the development of transition
0: and so it was from that work at kinsale and some of your other experiences that led to this idea of transition that you then developed into what is probably best well known the transition handbook and in turn the transition town movement
1: yeah that's right i, I kind of i had my sort of climate change peak oil sort of dark night of the soul in sort of 2004 and up until that point i had really been based on the kind of uh, The push in Permaculture Designer's Manual, Bill Mollison saying, the most ethical, responsible thing that you can do right now is to buy yourself some land, build a house, grow your own food, generate your own energy. And that had been my kind of push for the 10 years up until then. And then there I was, and I I was building a house, and I had my land with other people, and we were planting fuel forests and fruit trees and vegetable gardens. And I, I remember thinking, well... This is great, but actually, what about everybody else? Actually, I don't don't live in isolation. And actually, if these challenges are, are of such a magnitude that they have the potential to tip this society on its head at very short notice, am I prepared to defend what I have here? Am I prepared to sit at the gate with a shotgun and keep hungry people away from it? And I wasn't prepared to do that. I felt like, actually this was a challenge that needed everybody and that what we needed to those responses was a compassionate reaction, a compassionate response that that really had a place for everybody. So the transition idea was really born out of that. And then looking around and having looked at these challenges with my permaculture glasses on, looking at the permaculture movement as it was at that time around 2004 and thinking... You know, and this this was just after I'd read David Holmgren's book, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, which I think is a work of genius. And and I remember getting to the end of that and thinking, we need to scale this stuff up. We need to scale this stuff up so quickly. And at that point, 2004, permaculture had been around for, what, 30 years. There's still no permaculture design consultancies designing parks in cities or you know working on that kind of scale and actually most of the people I knew who were wonderful people doing transition in their own places were actually happiest you know saying we need to change the world but actually most of them were stuck up a little lane somewhere on a little small holding making chairs out of sticks there was this kind of we want to change society but we don't really want to get involved in it and i thought no 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 no, no. we need to we need a way we need to build a kind of trojan horse that we can stuff permaculture principles and insights and tools inside that you don't then have to, when someone asks you what that Trojan horse is, get a flip chart out in the pub and spend half an hour drawing little arrows and chickens and greenhouses and stuff. You need a way where people could just go, oh, yeah, it's permaculture. And permaculture wasn't there. Permaculture hadn't... Uh, uh, cult The culture that had built up around permaculture was too rooted in a sort of alternative oppositional sort of hippie culture and it wasn't it wasn't going to grow fast enough, I felt at the time so so the idea with transition was that it was the Trojan horse where people would oh it's transition oh yeah it's that transition thing yeah meanwhile, you could wheel your trojan horse past everybody with the permaculture in it and joanna Macy's grief and stuff kind of work and all of that stuff it was permaculture but it was called transition and and it meant that we could accelerate it much much faster, and so that was really. That was really what we were
0: trying to do at that point, do you feel that that acceleration has been fairly successful
1: obviously not as not as successful as one would hope in one's wildest dreams because we still live in the world that we live in and climate change is still happening, but actually, I think what we what we've seen in transition is a there's a story I tell sometimes about how I went to, in about 2008 or something, I got an organisation that supports social entrepreneurs rang me up and said, you are a social entrepreneur, and I had no idea what that even meant. But actually the process of finding out what that term means and that idea that that somehow was a, a useful term to describe the, the somewhat eccentric and eclectic kind of way that I do things Oh, I'm a social entrepreneur. Okay, well, that explains lots of things. So then an organisation rang me up and said, um, we support social entrepreneurs with interesting, innovative ideas. Please could you come and pitch what you do, put your work, your model, to our group of uh, sort of successful business types. And if they like what you do, then you know they'll support what you do in various kind of pro bono ways. You know. So I went up and I talked for about 15 minutes and I presented what we were doing. So... At the end of the presentation, there was this long pause and this guy said, so what you've done is create a very powerful, internationally recognized brand and then given it away for free to people all over the world over whom you have absolutely no control. And I said, yeah, that is kind of about it, really. And he said, that's mad. I said, well, it may be mad, but it works, you know. And there is a kind of, uh, I think, that spirit of let it go where it wants to go and the amount of trust that is built into transition there's now transition groups in 50 countries thousands of places uh, you know there are 28 countries that have their own national transition organizations and all of that stuff is done very much in that spirit of letting it go where it wants to go and uh, just giving people permission giving away you know just encouraging people to do stuff and and what people do and what people get on with is is just
0: remarkable i think And it's been fascinating to me to watch the transition town movement grow because not only has it caught on and spread so quickly, in some ways I think that transition towns are more accessible than this idea of permaculture in the abstract. But at the same time, that transition in some ways has moved to the point where there are folks who are practicing transition without understanding the original roots within permaculture because they come into an organization that is established and then are asked to step up into leadership positions and they continue to run what's there without, you know, knowing this, these roots. And I'm wondering if you've encountered that in your travels or if that's just something happening in the United States.
1: I think it's it's uh, I think it's fairly widespread, and and I'd, I'm not I'm not convinced that it's necessarily a bad thing because I think people who get involved in transition in in, in groups in in, in the core groups of transition, they bring all kinds of different stuff to transition. So I would be just as concerned as to whether that core group contained people who were skilled facilitators, for example, who were able to run good meetings, manage conflict, ensure that that sort of side of the group was working well, I would just be just as concerned as to whether there were people in that group who were who had experience of starting businesses and starting enterprise, because that's really, you know, the direction transition goes in of saying we need to build a new economy for this place and we need to we need to be the people that start it. You know, there needs to be a wide range of expertise. And, and, and actually, my experience is that people who come and get involved in transition, they kind of not everybody necessarily, but they kind of get if, if they don't, know in their mind the kind of principles of permaculture they kind of get the spirit of permaculture by osmosis just from being around the process do you know there's something in the kind of dna of transition where people get the kind of spirit of it so then you know i talk to quite a lot of people who've been involved in transition for three or four years have no background in permaculture and then go off and do a permaculture design course and they always say I kind of knew all that stuff, but I don't quite know how I did because I I never studied it before. But it was none of it was a surprise. Do you know what I mean? I think it, I think it's like in those groups we need we need a really wide range of expertise. You know, we also need people who are who are really good. What's he called? Michael Malcolm Gladwell calls mavens. You know, those people who are able to to have really lot, who are at the hub of lots of social networks and are able to network and 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 have conversations. You know, I, I think it's one of the things that has been most remarkable about transition, actually, has, has been the the stress on the on this notion of inner transition, that actually, you know, in, in permaculture, there's this idea of people care, uh, which was in there from the beginning, but actually Bill Mollison in particular was really not a great model of people care. And actually permaculture in its inception was... Was very male, and, and I think in many ways, you know, David Holmgren sort of represented the other side of it to a degree, you know. But but it's a it's a it's a movement which has you know one of the things Sophie Banks who who who, who kind of created a lot of the inner transitions sort of resources and thinking said was if you want a movement any movement that has sustained itself over a long period of time, you know, you look at things like Occupy and Debout that's happening in in France. actually to create a movement that explodes very, very quickly and engages loads of people is relatively straightforward. How you then put props under it so that it continues for a long period of time is much, much harder. And one of the things of movements that last a long time is that they, at the same time as they expand sort of horizontally, they also deepen at the centre. There's an ongoing inquiry at the centre that that deepens. And, And my experience in the permaculture movement was that Although people care is in there as a founding, one of the three founding pillars of permaculture, actually as an organisation, particularly the kind of early Australian manifestation of permaculture, was very kind of armoured against that. We don't do that kind of soft, kind of uh, talking, touchy-feely stuff. We're about, you know, putting in 10,000 miles of swales by Thursday, you know. And actually within the permaculture movement, there's been some, I think, incredibly... Brave and persistent, particularly women, actually, who've been speaking up for the need for that deepening in the centre, and people like Luby McNamara, Robin Francis, people who've who've been arguing for that. And I think in transition, it's something that uh, that we really recognise is that need that it needs to deepen uh, as much as it needs to widen, and that groups need to pay as much attention to how they do things. As to what that thing is that they're doing. So, so, you know, the group and how it works and the relationships matter as much as the actual projects themselves.
0: That's been one of the ongoing conversations in the United States is that we're really good at getting things done especially in the landscape. You know, we have all these great books on techniques. And as you say, swales, which uh, I see swales everywhere here because there's something that, you know, you can do and they're fun. And you can dig them on a weekend with your friends, crack out some beers when it's over and be like, look what we accomplished. Whereas that, that self-care and that people care, it's very unseen and it's a difficult work but now it seems that that's the place where permaculture really needs to go in order to have more of the broad success that we're looking for and in that process and to be more inclusive of women people of color different ideologies different faiths and all these other traditions that people come from and i find that in some ways the transition envelope within the permaculture movement is more geared towards that in ways that many of the early pioneering works of permaculture didn't open the door for
1: yeah i think and i think actually there's a lot of women in particular uh in permaculture who've who've really struggled actually to find a voice uh in a very sort of male doing focused kind of a space you know and i think it's really important to recognize that and 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 actually i was at the the permaculture conference in London last year and, and, you know, it's starting, it's starting to, sh- to shift, but I think in, in, in permac in transition, we've really tried to weave that in and, and design that in from the outset. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that transition is really great at it either. You know, I, th- I think the challenges around genuine deep inclusion are something that run across the left, the sustainability movement in general, but one of the things I think that we observe in, in transition is um, when I was I came to the US a couple of years ago and I met an amazing woman there called Daria Robinson from Urban Tilth in Richmond. Just fantastic. And we were speaking at an event together. And at, and at that event, I was saying, you know, people say, well, why is transition? Why is permaculture, you know, mostly white middle class kind of people, groups, you know? I said, well, because of what I think of as the the tyranny of volunteerism you know there is within permaculture and within many kind of alternative change movements this notion that we can change the world radically to the extent that we need to in the tiny window of time we have available with everybody working as volunteers giving up their wednesday evenings once they've got the kids to bed you know and it's like that's just not going to happen, you know. And and actually, if we have this, and that, and then the idea that as soon as you bring in any mention of money or anyone gets paid, that somehow the whole thing is therefore sort of tainted and has lost its ethical boundaries and is therefore rubbish. And and I said, you know, that that we have to move beyond that to a stage where we where we're realistic and we we recognise that some jobs get done a hell of a lot better if you can pay people to do it and actually if we can bring the way that an entrepreneur thinks about stuff to how we do transition to how we do permaculture then we really start to scale things up and she said afterwards when she was speaking she said it was so refreshing to hear somebody in this movement say that she said in my community in Richmond if this is a revolution that depends on volunteers we can't be part of this revolution. There's people here working six days a week just to keep the roof over their head. They don't have time to volunteer for some core group for anything. you know. And actually, so for me, the, the direction of transition is, how do we create new economies here? How do we create livelihoods and jobs for people and careers for people? and businesses and, and a whole culture that is going to be bringing those forward. And so it's what we call re the re-economy project, re which is a big strand now of transition, which is about making that case that transition is a form of economic development and it's going to be the better route to creating resilient livelihoods, local economies than what's currently on offer. And, and that feels to me like a really important uh, step up.
0: Having been involved in some of those conversations about money and whether or not this information should be free and things can be taught for free, sometimes I think it's forgotten not only, I mean, if somebody's taken a permaculture design course in some of the other classes, what the time that was invested into it, as well as the monetary, and also as some folks are moving towards professionalizing permaculture, you know, we know folks who are getting, you know, masters in business administration, MFAs, doctoral work, and all these other things in order to bring some of that research and academia and the mainstream recognitions back into permaculture to kind of form a bridge. And it doesn't matter whether someone has a fellowship so their education was paid for, that's still years and years of work that goes into that. That, you know, if you want to keep a roof over your head and you're working a a full-time job, what do you do in order to continue this kind of work?
1: You just end up rooting this set of ideas among people who are happy to live in a yurt for 20 years. I'd like to see there being permaculture design consultancies who are, you know, tendering to design golf courses, business parks, public spaces. You know, where are they after forty years of permaculture? You know, in this country, what, You know, where are they even? And there may be some in the U.S. Here, there are very, very few who 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 have taken permaculture but stepped it up and led to the level of professionalism where they could be part of a professional team designing a school or a university or you know so it should be you're designing a university you get the permaculture design guys in they've got all the qualifications they've got all the right stuff they can work with architects they can work with landscape designers they can work with contractors they can do all that stuff why don't we have that yet so so should it be then if you're into permaculture as soon as you have kids and you need a house for the kids, you just have to give up doing permaculture, really? For me, I've, there's a brilliant book I read last year by a guy called Curtis Stone called The Urban Farmer, which was New Society published, which was this idea of saying, you know, I go, I go to see lots of urban transition permaculture groups doing community gardens, you know, and it tends to be that kind of, I mean, they're great, but they're not designed for maximum productivity. You know, they're designed with that. You know, lots of different kinds of well, they're kind of edible, but in theory, but really, uh, you know, how many people sit down to a bowl of that for, for their lunch, you know? And uh, and actually what Curtis Stone's stuff does is he says, let's bring the thinking that a commercial market gardener, particularly those kind of market gardeners that um, Elliot Coleman raves about, you know, the the ones around Paris up in, before the First World War, those incredible, probably the most productive land use system there's been on this, planet for hundreds of years the way the french intensive market gardening around paris you know why don't we think in that way and actually look at that land and say actually we could generate two jobs out of this we could work this really intensively this could be uh this could be livelihoods for people and actually then you start to change you start to change the whole conversation then you start to open doors that that other previously weren't open you know it's 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 about it's a shift of mindset i think that's that, that, that's really important.
0: Yeah. And looking over all of that, I can think of some of the hurdles for that. In the United States we have, I can think of one organization that's really doing like high level permaculture consulting. And then there are a couple of other individuals, but that's that's one hand. And at least in the United States, one of the barriers for a lot of this and doing it big is either the cost of land, because where I am in Pennsylvania, even what is it undeveloped farmland, can run 20 or 30,000 dollars an acre and there's a lot of competition from developers who can walk in and write a check for several million dollars just to buy the space that someone would farm as well as like the education that goes with it and then on the consulting side it's that many government agencies around here. They want you to have a particular type of degree from an accredited university, which is a specialized type of of regional accreditation, that says that what you're doing is legitimate. And right now, the permaculture certificate, the permaculture diploma, with rare exceptions, doesn't have that kind of recognized legitimacy in order to do this kind of work.
1: But doesn't it strike you as remarkable that 45 years after permaculture was invented, we still don't have that? You know, universities run courses in organic farming, universities run courses in all kinds of different things. Why is there no university courses in permaculture?
0: And I'm wondering, and this is just a question that I continue to raise when looking at some of the the historical aspects of permaculture, is that the designer's manual is very anti-academia and the, this idea of keeping it free and keeping it open so that it doesn't go into the halls of universities and that that thread still exists very heavily in the United States. I've received some information from folks in the UK, in Australia, where that seems to be changing, but it's it's very limited. I don't know of a place where I can go and say get a PhD in permaculture from a major public university. You know,
1: I wonder, you know, if you could do a permaculture course, if you could do a permaculture course that also included landscape design, to the extent that you could work commercially as a, as a landscape designer also maybe included you know forestry with a permaculture strand to that kind of level as well do you know what i mean i mean i could imagine i could imagine the most fantastic degree imaginable you know where you could be doing modules in you know natural building at, at a kind of university level people coming out of that would be just astonishingly in demand you would you would imagine but also you know but it is that balance between you know, it being a grassroots thing, as you say, that's available for free and spreads like that and something that becomes professionalised. But for me, I think, you know, you have both. We need this stuff everywhere yesterday. I don't think we can be precious. We can't be precious. Oh, well, it's permaculture. You can't teach permaculture university because then, you know, they might become professional permaculture. It's like, I don't give a shit. I want this everywhere. This in This thinking needs to run through academia. It needs to run through community development. It needs to run through... Uh, wherever it can wherever it can gain any kind of traction you know if if there's TV presenters talking about permaculture brilliant you know if there's whatever sometimes what we imagine is is us protecting the the purity and the integrity of something is actually us kind of stifling it from from being what it could be I'm being very controversial today, aren't I? Obviously, you see, we just had had the Brexit thing here where Britain voted to leave the European Union, so I'm in a very bad mood, so you've caught me being very grumpy about everything.
0: It's quite all right, because there's a lot of time (laughs) that I spend when the microphone's off thinking about these kinds of things and, like, yelling at the screen, you know, feeling like that old man yelling, get off my lawn, where really it's not about getting off of my lawn. It's like, get on my lawn. We need to do this. This is important. Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: (laughs) And, and, and the, I mean, the story that I always tell, actually, which was one of my big sort of permaculture frustrations, was I was a permaculture teacher for about 10 years or something. And as a permaculture teacher, I mean, I don't know if you teach yourself. I mean, there's there's always that thing of, you know, the tale of two chickens. And you do that exercise with the chickens and the greenhouses. And, you know, you do the, the inputs and the outputs and the chickens outputs are so warmth and carbon dioxide. And, da, 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 and then you match them all together. Yeah. So, you, so then it leads you to the chicken greenhouse as the great example of super permaculture design in action that the chickens warm the greenhouse, gives the chickens somewhere to be, the CO2 from the chickens is good for the plants, you know, this perfect example of permaculture. And I taught this thing for 10 years, you know, and then I bought a greenhouse to build it and I thought... Wow, this is my chance. I can do a chicken greenhouse and I'm going to get chickens. Fantastic. I'm going to do both of these things. Right. Well, I better find out. I'll, I'll talk to somebody who's already built a chicken greenhouse. I could not find anyone who had built a chicken greenhouse. I, I put a blog out about it. I emailed different people. I wrote to all the permaculture people I know and said, have you ever actually seen a chicken greenhouse that works? <laughs> There's nobody, nobody Oh, there was a couple of people who said, oh yeah, I heard of one once, but nobody could point me to a chicken greenhouse. So I was thinking, what is going on with this? Here we have this sort of design icon that is taught on permacultures, permaculture courses around the world, but it doesn't actually work, you know? where's Where is the kind of evidence-based gathering and i know it's and it's starting to happen now and i'm delighted there's a great thing the permaculture association in the uk are doing called the land project which is about starting to build a kind of evidence base about what's what works and doesn't what but within transition we you know we do try to encourage a lot more data gathering and testing and, and researching so that actually if we say this works you know so we try to not put sort of myths out there that just Everybody starts talking about and believing in, but actually, that doesn't actually work. You know. Have you ever seen a chicken greenhouse? No, I haven't. Okay, interesting, isn't it? I wonder if any of the, if any listeners to this podcast have ever seen a working chicken greenhouse. Please get in touch. I'd love to. I'd love to hear about it.
0: As would I, because there are a lot of those techniques that are presented that i've not seen examples of i've seen drawings i've seen theory but i've never actually on the ground witnessed an implementation even in pictures
1: yeah It's, it's mad isn't
0: it Very much so. And it touches on many of the the pieces that I get into, in that we have all of these discussions of what an on the ground technique will look like. But then it's those techniques that are getting replicated. And sometimes I find that the design is missing, Mm. that, you know, permaculture in the end is really about designing systems, you know, where two or more things interact as part of a whole. And yet it's more about like this singular representation of what permaculture can lead to rather than the thought processes that get us there.
1: Mm, absolutely. I I'm, I'm 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 really fascinated by this stuff that uh, Dan Palmer is is doing at the moment about about permaculture and Christopher Alexander's stuff. Have you seen any of that? Uh, he has a website called Making Permaculture Stronger and he's done a couple of posts about Christopher Alexander's approach to design you know like that comes through pattern language but then more particularly in the books he wrote after pattern language about a sort of very different way of approaching design uh, in permaculture which I'd really recommend readers to have a listeners to have a look at
0: and I'll certainly share links to that material I'm familiar with Dan and I've read I read some of the early releases when he started that work but I haven't been following him heavily lately
1: mm, it's very very interesting stuff I, I I love Christopher Alexander's work and and it was brilliant to see somebody take the time to sort of try and piece the two together because Alexander's
0: stuff is quite complex
1: uh and uh, it was great great what he's done with that
0: we've spent about half of the interview going in a direction that i wasn't expecting <laughs> <laughs> but i'm very thankful to have had the conversation because it shines some light on on ideas within permaculture that i myself have had questions about and have wanted to see addressed or have been involved in in Private conversation, but not public ones. So I really thank you for that. And it'd be easy for me to sit here and have you, you know, we could go down this road probably for a couple of hours, especially with this kerfuffle over the Brexit and the space that it leaves you in. Yeah, don't get but me started. We'll, we'll wait for this to kind of, I don't want to say blow over because there's so much work to go, but once things calm down a little, we can talk about the impacts that this is having and the influences on transition. But as I always like to offer at the end of an interview, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I think there's some of the
1: projects, some of the things that really interest me in transition going forward is, is about needs. You know, I, I'm involved with, a, uh, with an amazing uh, project here in Totnes, which is called Atmos Totnes, which is a community-led redevelopment of an old factory site. It's a big factory uh, eight acre site uh, in the middle of the town next to the railway station which has been empty for nine years now and we've run the most extraordinary community project to bring that site into community ownership and for the community to develop it and one of the things that that, that has really been a real light bulb for me is that that project at the, from the beginning there's five of us who are the trustees of that project and have been working on it for far too long and is uh, about needs. So I would notice, you know, sometimes, you know, in, in permaculture, you know, when you're designing something, there's a presumption of what the needs are. You know, the needs are, you know, people need a cob oven and a, and, a, and a nice sort of cob thing, and they need lots of herbs and some fruit trees and, you know. And actually, if you talk to the people, actually what people want is a house they can afford and a job and uh, to not be so in debt and for their children to have safe places to play, and um, for their children to be able to stay in that place and not have to move because the house prices are now so expensive. So actually, we've created a project where we're actually as designers, or as as the people who've kind of driven that process forward, we all recognise that actually what we want to see happen on that site doesn't matter, and that actually what the project is about meeting the needs that the community have. So part of the project, for example, is we're building... 67 houses in a community land trust which are based on a survey of nearly a thousand local people around what the town's housing needs are and then that housing mix is then based on what people need Uh, so the the spaces there that will be incubator spaces for new businesses are based on consulting people about what they need and I wonder whether sometimes you know those of us who are in the kind of change making climate change movement need to listen a bit more sometimes to actually what people need and then design that and whether we can apply the skills that we have to addressing those needs rather than what we imagine to be the needs of people because actually you know to go back to the Brexit thing and actually what we've seen here has been a largely sort of the kind of the working culture of this country that, that was sort of eviscerated by Margaret Thatcher who shut down all those industries and have then just been ignored and sort of sidelined since and had a kind of proud work culture which has since been replaced by call centres and insurance companies, basically sticking two fingers up to the establishment. And actually, if we really want permaculture to be something that is becomes embedded in our more general kind of mainstream culture we need to really be focusing it around what people's needs are you know do people need perennial salads maybe but actually maybe they need things that they recognize that are grown intensively in the places where they live and that they're creating livelihoods for their kids and that that feels like you know there's a kind of a step up there for me that that i try and bring from uh, permaculture into transition i think but just to finish off i have to say (laughs) because i feel like all i've done is come on and moan about permaculture I love permaculture and it has—it it is the way that my brain works and uh, it's the way that my garden works and, uh, um, and I am vastly grateful to it and still profoundly in love with it. So I'm, uh, any criticism that I'm making of permaculture is coming from the place of uh, adoring it deeply.
0: We love it enough to criticise it so that it can grow and become stronger. Thank you, Rob, for this interview. It's been a long time coming. Your book was the first one that I read after my permaculture design course and was my first introduction to like non-landscape based permaculture though of course I fell back down that rabbit hole and it took me a couple of years to to drag myself back out of it and to begin to look at social economic and community structures and I really appreciate that you've taken the time to develop these ideas to have written the book and to continue to provide insight and leadership into how we can create permaculture-based communities that can transition regardless of what we face, whether that is climate change or an exit from the European Union.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and so just just to say, if people are interested in finding out more about transition, if they will have a look at transitionnetwork.org, you'll find on there, the, the, the blog that I do, uh, you'll find on there and uh, all kinds of other resources.
0: Well, thank you for joining me today and sharing all of this with us. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And that was Rob Hopkins. Find out more about him and his work at transitionnetwork.org and the other resources in the show notes. If you're interested in starting your own transition town or want more information on the movement, let me know. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or if you like, drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018 From here the next episode is with Eric Chisler and is a conversation about gift economics and community Until then spend each day working to create the world and communities that you want to live in by taking care of earth yourself and each other